morning. So good to see you guys as we gather again on the Lord's Day. Thankful that you set clocks, and uh, even if you are missing an hour of sleep, you are here on time. So good to see you guys again as we gather together. Let me just remind you of a couple of things by way of announcement as we kind of look at the calendar and everything that's going on over the next few days. Please remember that in about three weeks, first Sunday of April, April the 2nd, we'll receive our Annie Armstrong um, offering for North American missions. And so there's some information uh, that's been going out to you guys about how you can be praying, about how you can be thinking about how the Lord would have you to give toward this special offering. Every penny of this offering goes to support uh, missions efforts, Southern Baptist missions efforts on the continent of North America. So be praying about that, be thinking about how the Lord would have you to, uh, to give toward that on Sunday April the 2nd. Also, we want to make you aware, maybe this uh, is is something that somebody in this room uh, could take advantage of. Maybe you know somebody that would be qualified for this, but we are so thankful for the growth that is happening with our weekly preschool ministry just next door. And because of, of growth and some shifting dynamics within the preschool, we actually have need for this coming school year for um, a new K-2 and K-3 teacher. And so that's, uh, those announcements are going out, those listings are going out. If you are in the room and you think, hey, that's kind of in my wheelhouse, then see Nifa uh, on that and she can kind of get you all the information pointed in the right direction. If you have somebody that you know that maybe is looking for that kind of opportunity would be well suited and would meet the qualifications for that opportunity, have them reach out to Nifa, have them reach out to the church office and we will get everybody that information. So just be praying about those needs with us as we seek to continue to engage those students and their families here in our community. Beloved, it's so good to see you again. Let me pray for us and we'll begin our time of worship together this morning. God in heaven, we love you and we thank you for who you are and what you have done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we gather on this Lord's day, God, we gather in great hope. Father, we gather in the expectancy, God, in the hope and expectancy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, today as we worship, as we hear from your word, God, as we observe Lord's Supper together, God, as we serve one another, as we fellowship together with the body, as we receive grace upon grace from you, Lord, we come saying that we are so desperate for you, that we need you. Father, we come saying maybe that we are weary from the week behind, we are burdened with the cares of the week ahead. Father, we gather knowing, God, that this is what you have called us to. We gather knowing that there is nowhere else that we would rather be. Father, we gather knowing that we need this moment as your people. So God, draw near to those that have gathered. Lift up the the disheartened. Further encourage those who are walking. Enjoy this morning. God, build up your church. God, save the lost. God, do a great work of grace among us. God, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. So God, we do that now, all because and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray it. Amen. Church family, let's stand as we open with worship. Blessed be your name in the land that is planted. 
family, would you take your copy of God's Word and join me in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning for our scripture reading. Hebrews chapter 7, if you are able, would you remain standing with us for the reading of God's Word. We have seen this name pop up a couple of times in our reading through Hebrews, the name Melchizedek. And now in chapter 7, we come face to face with this somewhat, uh, what, what appears to be maybe a bit of a mysterious figure from the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter 14. In order to sort of rightly understand all of the language of Hebrews chapter 7, and I'll, I'll tell you, this is probably some of the most difficult language in the book, so I want you to really apply your hearts and your minds as we read this together. But as we're looking at this text, we're being reminded of the moment in Genesis chapter 14 when Abram comes to meet the king of Salem, the priest king of Salem, Melchizedek. And as the author of Hebrews reminds us of that moment, we're once again being reminded that Jesus is better that Jesus is, in fact, the great high priest and the great King of kings and Lord of lords who comes in the order of this one that we see in chapter 7, Melchizedek. So as you're wondering about that weird name and trying to place it all together, that's some of the flow for us this morning. As we hear from God's Word, we ask and pray that God would take this eternal truth And write it upon our hearts, and beloved, that we would continually see that Jesus is better. Chapter 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receives tithes, but in, the case, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest? to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing, concerning priest and this is clearer still 
If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there's a setting aside of former commandments because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God and inasmuch as it was not without an oath for they indeed became priests without an oath but he with an oath through the one who said to him the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant The former priest, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, hear this church, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Church, be seated, and let's go to the Lord in prayer together this morning. Father, even in, and especially in the law, God, there is the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, in the law, we know our guilt. We see it clearly. Father, in the law, we know that we are not fit as sinners to come before your holy presence. So, Father, in the law, you lay out this priestly office priest who would stand as our representative before you, your representative before man, who daily are offering sacrifices and making intercession on behalf of the people. Father, we know that in the law that the blood of bulls and goats could never atone. Father, we know that in the law the priests of old, God, that they were pointing to someone greater. Someone who would come in the order of Melchizedek, the priest and the king. And God, that someone is your son, Jesus Christ. Your beloved son, in whom you are well pleased. Our hope, our life, our eternal security. 
Father, it is through Christ, our priest, who came, who lived, who died, who offered Himself as a sacrifice for sin. Father, it is through Christ, God, that we are made Your people forever. Father, it is Christ even now who has risen and seated at Your right hand. Father, it is Your Son who daily makes intercession for us. Father, it is Your Son who when the accuser comes, it is Your Son who intercedes on our behalf to say that one is covered in My blood. And it is through Christ that we are eternally secure. So, God, I pray that there be great hope and rejoicing in our hearts in light of those things. God, that the reality of who Christ is, what He has done, and what He is still doing, God, that that would encourage Your people this Lord's Day. God, help us as we continue to sing, celebrate, to lift up, to magnify the name of Christ, our King, and our eternal priest. Through His name that we pray. Amen. Church family, let's stand as we continue in worship. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ, hallelujah, Jesus is
as you're seated, we are going to take a few minutes and look at some scripture, one verse from 2 Corinthians 7.10, and as we do each week and each month, as we look at a verse or two for memory, this is not just an exercise in, in just getting something in your head, but this is a practice of beholding Christ in His Word. And so just before this, in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, it says that, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So as we behold the glory of God, as we behold Christ in His Word, from one degree of glory to another, we are being transformed into His likeness, into His image. That the Word of God has a purifying effect on us. Not only is it instructive in that it teaches us what it is true, but in the practice of reading and considering and looking upon Christ in His Word, we are changed. We are slowly sanctified and made more into His likeness. And so, as we look at this verse and think about it, it's not just an exercise or just let's get through the next five minutes. But this is a moment of worship to consider God's word that it would be chiseled on our souls. So if you would repeat with me the words on the screen, this one verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's do it out loud. Ready? Here we go. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. 2 Corinthians 7.10 Sorrow, grief, an emblem of salvation, of genuine repentance, is a recognition of the reality of what sin has done between you 
and God. Not just what it has done effectively around us, but that sin has caused eternal destruction and death between you, me, and our Creator, our good God who has sent His Son to bleed for us. The perfect, pure Christ. The Word, the Lagos, who spoke all things into existence. Who ordered everything and has preserved everything, came and humbled Himself by taking humanity upon Himself in order to take what was not His. What is ours to bear. We deserve the judgment, the right and good judgment of God, yet Christ has taken it upon Himself. That He would die once for the sins of the world. Once for the sins of His people. Such that we can have hope because Christ has stood in our place. That is what our sin has done. It has necessitated the death of the Son, God. Thus, we should feel remorse, contrition, sorrow for our sin. That leads to a repentance, that leads from a cha- to a change of life that bears fruit for all eternity. And so just take a little thermometer of your own heart. Do you feel contrite and sorrowful over your sin? Or does it only matter to you when you see the effects around you? Does it matter to you because of the reality of what it has done between you and your Creator God? Father, I thank You. I thank You, Lord. I thank You that You have seen fit to call out of darkness people to know You, to see You, to receive grace. Lord, I don't deserve a bit. The mercy that you've extended to me, I I deserve none of it, Lord. You have withheld the judgment that I rightly deserve because of my sin, because of my rebellion against you, my continued selfishness. And Lord, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, I ask that God, you would soften my own heart to the effect of sin and to, to what sin does and what it has done and what it cost. That you, Lord Jesus, gave your life on my behalf and our behalf. God, Lord, would you soften our hearts to the reality of the destruction of sin in our own lives that we so often are complacent towards. And Lord, would you move within us by your Spirit and in accordance with your Word that God, Lord, we would look around us in this world and be sorrowful over the destruction that sin has, has wrecked in our culture and in this country and in our society. That God, You would, Lord, move within Your people, within us, that God, we would, we would decide to stand upon Your truth and Your Word. Lord, we would decide to stand upon, Lord, what You have inspired and what You have done and that God, we would sacrifice Lord, what we think is best for ourselves in order to obey and follow You. That God, we would set those things aside, lay them aside, that God, we would trust fully in Your Son, that that God, what we think is best for us, Lord, we we would instead trust in You and in Your Word and trust, Lord, in Your direction for us. God, would You help us this morning? God, may we hear from You. May we see You. Lord, would you remind us as we come before your table 
to partake of, Lord, these, this bread and this juice, the visible picture and image and representation of the very real body and blood that was shed on our behalf. That God, we would be moved to repentance. We would be moved to sorrow over our sin. Not be complacent and negligent. But that God, we would recognize the very cost our rebellion and our sin, our selfishness meant. And so God, thank you and ask God that you be with and speak to us. Lord, in keeping with your will, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church family, would you join me in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. This morning, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, really focusing the lion's share of our time, verse 3. Today, as you turn to Matthew chapter 5, we turn to yet another major section of Matthew's Gospel, we come to what is commonly known as, it may even be entitled this way above chapter 5 in your Bibles, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5 to 7 contain one of the largest, uh, the largest teaching sections in all of the Gospel accounts. In Matthew's Gospel in particular, there will be five major teaching sections. It begins here in Matthew chapter 5 verse uh, or at through chapter 7. Uh, this Sermon on the Mount, as we think about it, as we even let our eyes fall on these pages and we see a variety of topics and issues that are being addressed here. Throughout the history of the church, this text has been widely misunderstood and widely misapplied. There are some who say about this sermon that Jesus is simply coming to set forth for us a, a new moral code, if you will. Like other good teachers throughout history, Jesus comes along with another good ethic, another good moral code for us to follow in order to just be good citizens of the culture in which we inhabit. Others have wrongly applied this text by saying that Jesus has come and in the Sermon on the Mount that he is establishing a new law, if you will. Essentially, believe and do, obey the things that Jesus is commanding in the Sermon on the Mount and it is in that obedience to these things that you will be made right with God. However, very early in this sermon, Jesus will make abundantly clear that that is not the central reality or a correct understanding of this text at all. It's important to know, beloved, that as you turn to Matthew 5 and you read there in verse 1 that Jesus sits down on this hillside and as he opens his mouth and as he begins to teach his people that what is about to come out of his mouth is absolutely going to be a bombshell that is going to reverberate across that hillside and into the hearts of people. And it is a bombshell of a of a sermon that continues to reverberate all throughout history. The shockwave from this sermon, if you will, it is going to make its way southward into Jerusalem. It is going to make its way into the hearts of these hypocritical religious leaders. It is going to destroy the works-based legalism of this day. 
And in this bombshell of a sermon, Jesus is saying and driving at and continually repeating this one central reality that the kingdom of God has come and this is what the lives of the inhabitants of that kingdom, this is what those lives look like. Certainly more than a moral code. Absolutely not a call to say, obey this and you will be right with God. But the king of the kingdom is saying, the kingdom is here. And if you are a disciple of this kingdom, if you are a part of the kingdom of God, then your life is to look like this. At the very heart of this sermon is this, if you have come to God by faith, then you will live a life of faith and your life will look this way as Jesus walks through this sermon. At the heart of this sermon is Jesus saying, if you are my disciples, if you say that you are a Christ follower, then you don't get the license to live however you want to live, however fits your fancy. Jesus says, no, this is what life inside the kingdom looks like. And if we'll remember that central theme throughout these chapters and throughout the verses of this sermon, then we will rightly understand Jesus' teaching. And beloved, we'll rightly understand what it means to be a follower, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sermon begins with these familiar Beatitudes, verses 1 through 12. The familiar Beatitudes, these blessedness that we see before us in the text. The word Beatitude, it comes from a Latin word that means blessed. And then when you notice that every one of these Beatitudes begins with the word blessed, you begin to understand why this section is called the Beatitudes. And in these nine Beatitudes, Jesus begins his sermon with a clear distinction of those who are his disciples and those who are not. Every Beatitude is a paradox. It is something that when you first read it, it doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem to make sense. Maybe it even feels a little contradictory. However, upon further study, what we find is that the kingdom of God, that in the kingdom of God, these things actually do go hand in glove with one another. This sermon on the mount, these beatitudes, they begin in verse 3 with the most fundamental question that any person could ask. And it is so fundamental that it demands an answer, the right answer from all who would ask it. And the question is this, what kind of person, what kind of person may inherit the kingdom of God? What kind of person? Is it just you enter however you want and you live however you want, you believe however you want, or are there parameters given for the kind of person that would be a part of the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of heaven for the strong is it for the wise is it for the mighty is it for the rich or does god have a different standard in this first beatitude there's one point it's kind of a one point sermon don't don't tell my seminary professors there's supposed to be three but you just get one 
in this. Here's the one central truth from this first beatitude. Entrance into God's kingdom is only granted to those who are humble of heart. That's it. Entrance into God's kingdom is granted only to those who are humble of heart. Pick up the text with me, Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is there in Galilee, that northern region of Israel. His home base is Capernaum, just outside the city of Capernaum. There is a, a, a mountain range. It's more like hills, sort of a hilly range. And so it's probably up on one of those hills. You go up to the top of that and you get the uh, opportunity to look south and a little west. And you overlook the village of Capernaum and you have this amazing view of the Sea of Galilee there. Jesus goes and in verse 1 he sits down. Like the Jewish teachers of his day, they would not stand as they taught. They would sit as they taught with everybody sitting there around them. And Jesus begins to open his mouth. And he begins to teach them. And we've talked in recent weeks about the, centra- the, the, the centrality of the teaching and, and the preaching of God's Word in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so then it's no surprise then that as these crowds gather to Him, Jesus sits down now and there's going to be a lengthy moment here, a lengthy section of Scripture devoted to His teaching. And as He begins to teach, the very first thing out of His mouth in these Beatitudes is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs. And you see, even in that, that Jesus is setting some parameters here. And we would be wise to rightly understand what these parameters are, again, as we're seeking to answer the question, who is it that may enter into the kingdom of heaven? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want us to think for a moment about that word, blessed. This word gets used in many different contexts. And in many different ways to such a degree that I fear we have lost a right and proper understanding of the meaning of this word. Sometimes you will ask people how they're doing and they'll say what? I am blessed. Or maybe they would say I am living the blessed life. Or maybe at the end of a conversation as you're departing from someone, one would say to the other something along the lines of be blessed, right? In those usages of the word blessed, people are most always referring to their circumstances as being good. How are you? I'm blessed. I'm living the blessed life. And what we find so often in their understanding of that word is that things are going well for them. There's enough money in the checkbook. Nobody's sick. Things at work have been going well the last couple weeks. It's pretty smooth sailing right now. So that has to mean, right? It must mean that I'm living the blessed life. Because there's also an understanding that if things aren't going well, if there's no money in the checkbook, if all the kids at home are sick, if work is a train wreck, then maybe we begin to think somehow or the other, I've done something wrong and I am no longer living the blessed life. And in that understanding, being blessed is wholly dependent upon one's 
circumstances. However, this is not a biblical and right understanding of what it means to be blessed. Or if we want to use the language, to live a blessed life. The word blessed in the Beatitudes and then throughout the New Testament, it means this. It means, it's referring to the condition of someone who is in Christ. It is referring to the condition of being content and satisfied in Jesus. Being blessed is not the same as being happy. Because happiness is completely determined by what? By your circumstances. All goes well, you're happy. Nothing goes well, you're no longer happy. Being blessed is the deep-rooted contentment. It is the deep-rooted peace in your heart based on your relationship with Jesus and His work of salvation in your life. It is being blessed that lets you sing, it is well with my soul, even when sorrows like sea billows roll. Being blessed is being at peace and contentment in your soul because of Jesus. Even though all around my soul gives way, He is what? My hope and stay. Being blessed has nothing to do with your circumstances, beloved. It has everything to do with Christ. It has everything to do with who Jesus is and what He has done. It is a condition of the hearts. Look again in verse 3. Who are the ones who are blessed? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And here we come to our first paradox. That doesn't seem to make sense. We might would expect that to say blessed are the rich. I mean, if anybody's blessed, it's the rich, right? Blessed are those whose, you know, whose kids are healthy and whose marriage is strong and who's getting the promotion at work. That's not what it says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It seems to be upside down. It doesn't seem to add up or compute in our brains. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And how can Jesus say that it's those people who are the blessed ones? In the New Testament, there are Really two primary words that get used for poor. Now, one of these words is certainly poor. It is poverty. But the person who is this kind of poor, they still have some means of income. They, they, are, they are able to earn, even if it's slight, they are able to earn a, a, a daily wage and at least have some, be it meager, at least some provision for themselves. But that's not the word that Jesus is using in verse 3. There's a second kind of word for the word poor. And this is talking about beggar poor. Absolutely nothing. No source of income. This person is completely reliant on others for sustenance and survival. This person has nothing. They have no way to attain anything unless someone else comes along and gives it to them. 
They have nothing. They can get nothing. And unless someone intervenes, they will have nothing. There's a picture of this in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 21, particularly in verse 20. You know that reference as the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is there before he dies. And remember the description about him in verse 20? There was a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at the gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. That's the kind of poor that we're talking about. Desperate, destitute, on the very verge of death unless something or someone comes and intervenes. And it's that word, that understanding of poor, that Jesus is using in verse 3. Blessed are the beggar poor in spirit. And the kind of poverty that Jesus has in mind in verse 3 is not a poverty of economics. It's not a poverty of social status. But it is a poverty of what? Of spirit. A poverty of spirit. A spiritual poverty. Beloved, what characterizes the spirit of a disciple of Jesus who is a part of His kingdom is that that person knows how utterly destitute they truly are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. That they are not merely kind of making it and somehow eking out an existence. They are on the verge of absolute death. And when we talk about the one who is poor in spirit, they understand that they are the beggar at the gate on the verge of death unless Christ comes and makes them alive. They are not merely on the verge of death. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that they are dead. The person who is a part of the kingdom of God They know that spiritually speaking, they are Lazarus outside the gates. They are hungry, they are destitute and sick, and in their sin, they will die. Eternally separated from the goodness of God only to know the holy wrath of God because of their sin. The person who is poor in spirit, They know that they have nothing by which they may live apart from Christ. The one who is poor in spirit weeps as they sing, all I have is Christ. The person who is poor in spirit knows that whatever might be counted as gain to them must be counted as loss. You remember Paul in Philippians chapter 3? In those first seven verses, Paul is saying, listen, if anybody in the room has reason to boast about earthly accomplishment, it's me. And he gives his credentials, and they are impressive. And then Paul says this in verses 8 and 9, I count all things to be loss. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but what? But rubbish. 
count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul gets it. Paul is poor in spirit. All that stuff that I might say, I did this, and because I did this, I am right with God. Paul says it's, it's nothing to me. It profits me nothing. In fact, it is rubbish to me. Because that's not the kind of righteousness that makes me right with God. It's only the righteousness of Christ. The poor in spirit are, as the Puritan Thomas Watson said, those who are brought to the sense of their sins and seeing no good in themselves, they despair in themselves and lean wholly to the mercy of God. Friend, are you poor in spirit this morning? The poor in spirit know that they have nothing good in themselves by which they might be right with God. So they dare not trust in themselves. This gets perfectly illustrated in Luke 18. Turn there with me for a moment. Luke chapter 18. Let this settle into your souls, beloved. Because entrance into the kingdom of God is at stake. Eternity is at stake here. Look how this gets illustrated for us in Luke 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. That's a righteousness derived on your own. But, verse 13, the tax collector standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. D.A. Carson said that to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. The kingdom of heaven is not given on the basis of race, earned merits. It is given to the poor, the despised publicans, the prostitutes, those who are so poor they know they can offer nothing and they do not try. They cry for mercy and they alone are heard. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. 
Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15 says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. Who does God dwell with? Who is it that dwells with God in Isaiah 57? The contrite and the lowly of spirit. Who inherits the kingdom of heaven? Not those who try to barge in by a righteousness of their own, but those who bow themselves low and plead the mercy of God, for they know they have nothing else by which they may come. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only those who rely completely on the grace of God through Jesus Christ inherit the kingdom, eternal life. No one rich in their own righteousness inherits the kingdom. No one who thinks they deserve the kingdom inherits the kingdom. No one who comes to God holding on tightly to their own merit is able to receive from God free grace and an eternal kingdom. Only those who come empty-handed and say with the old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Charles Spurgeon said the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink low in ourselves. Friend, are you in Christ this morning? Not, did you sing some songs about Him today? Not, do you know some things about Him? Not, can you tell a few stories about Him? Have you come to Jesus Christ and to Him alone for your salvation? Have you come to the place where you understand, where you realize that sin has fundamentally broken you and it has broken your relationship with God and that the only way by which that might be made whole is through the blood of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross? Have you come to the place where you have said, I am done. I lay it all down. I count it all as rubbish so that I might gain Christ. If you have not yet come to that place of just a humble giving up and surrender, you have not yet come to a right relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Nobody, church, nobody struts their way into the kingdom of heaven. Nobody. When we read in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on His throne high, lifted up. The train of His robe filled the temple. There's burning angels there, by the way. And in the midst of holiness, what is Isaiah's response? I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. For I, have, for, I, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. 
Isaiah gets it in that moment. Nobody struts their way into the kingdom. One faithful pastor said that the door to the kingdom is low and only those who stoop low may enter through it. You must come to Christ. This very day. This very moment. Don't be so arrogant to think that you get another five minutes on this planet. Come to Christ today. If you are a believer in the room, rejoice. Rejoice and celebrate that God's grace has come to you through His Son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty, you might become rich. Church, that demands our lives. It, it demands our worship. It demands everything from us. Again, Thomas Watson, the Puritan church, rejoice in this. Hear this. To you that have any good hope through grace, that you have a title to blessedness, let me say as the Levites did to the people, stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. What infinite cause have you to be thankful that the lot of free grace has fallen upon you? Though you had forfeited all, yet God has provided a haven of happiness. And He is carrying you upon the sea of Christ's blood, the gale of His Spirit blowing your sails. Millions there are who shall lie under the bitter vials of God's curses. Whereas He will bring you into His banqueting house and pour out the flagons of wine and feast you eternally with the delicacies of heaven. Here you drink the water of tears, but shortly you shall drink the wine of paradise. Be comforted with thoughts of a kingdom. Church, be comforted by the thoughts of a kingdom. February 18, 1546, Martin Luther, the great reformer, died. And just before he died, his very last words were this, we are beggars. This is true. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we need to be humbled. We must be humbled under the glorious weight of this first beatitude that only the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom. God, there is simply nothing that we can bring before You. God, that is going to stay Your wrath against sin. God, there's nothing that we can offer God, that would atone for all of sin's demands. God, if 
there's one in the room that doesn't know Christ. And God, I pray that You would humble them under Your mighty hand. Humble them under the Gospel so that they might then be able to look up and behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. God, for the church, for those who are believers and in Christ, for those who's God, for those who have been given the kingdom, God, would you encourage them? Help them to continually walk in gospel humility? God, give them hope of a better day. Father, as we come to observe the Lord's Supper this morning, God, as we do this in remembrance of Christ, God, would you specifically work into our hearts this morning that Christ left the riches of heaven to become poor so that we who were poor might become rich in Him. And God, gloriously remind us in this moment that were it not for Christ, we would have died in our sins outside the gate. So God, as we continue to worship taking these elements into our hands, putting them to our lips. Father, all praise, all glory to Your great name for who You are and what You have done for us in Christ. And this is, it's in His name that we pray it. Amen.